Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. And now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Growing up, I knew God in theory, but it was in eighth grade that my knowledge of God moved from being just a theoretical knowledge to knowing God in reality. And I've gotten to share some of that story with you before, but one tool that God used in showing himself to me at that time was the diary, the journals of a Wheaton College student named uh, Jim Elliott. And as I read what Jim Elliott had to say um, about this God that he knew, I remember thinking to myself as an eighth grader, that's a God worth knowing. I want to know the God that Jim Elliott knows. And then as I would read about Jim Elliott's dreams that he had for how God would use his life one day, I remember God using that to awaken in me some dreams about how God might use my own life one day, some similar dreams to uh, Elliot's. Uh, let me just share with you just three quotes from Jim Elliot's reflections that uh, give you a little taste of the kind of ministry dreams, dreams that he had. He said, Father, make of me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. He said, we are so utterly ordinary, so commonplace, while we profess to know a power the 20th century does not reckon with. The world cannot hate us. We are too much like its own. Oh, that God would make us dangerous. And finally, he wrote in his journal, I only hope that God will let me preach to those who have never heard that name Jesus. What else is worthwhile in this life? I have heard of nothing better. Lord, send me. Some of you, as you hear those quotes, you are thinking to yourself right now, those are the kind of dreams that I have for my life too. Jim Elliott's journals sound a lot like mine. I dream about how God might use me to reach my coworkers with the good news about Jesus. I dream about the day when all the other moms of little children in my neighborhood might get to hear the gospel because of my influence in their life. I dream about God making me somebody who's dangerous, to use Jim Elliott's words. Some of you have those kinds of ministry dreams. Others of you, maybe you, even though you've been a Christian for a long time, don't have those sorts of ministry dreams. You would say, when you hear those quotes from Jim Elliott, you would say, I've never once been captivated by any kind of dream that looks anything like that. And that's actually pretty normal for a church-going person, especially on the North Shore today. Um, but despite it being normal, I, I wonder if it's worth asking ourselves why that is. Why is it that you haven't had dreams of what God might do with your life down the road? As you reflect on that, if one of the answers that comes to mind is that ministry is something for a select few, pastors and missionaries and those super elite Christians who are on some higher plane, then I think we need to take a moment and just identify that as a lie from the enemy. When scripture talks about us all being a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, it envisions a church of people who are all in ministry, all in full-time ministry even, we could say, in some sense. In some sense, it's correct, the old quote, that if you're not a missionary, you're a mission field. Um, if the point of our lives here on earth was to get saved and then just 
hang on tight until Jesus returns, then wouldn't God have just taken us up to himself at the moment that we gave our lives to him? He left us here for a reason. And in a healthy church, every member is in ministry. Don't be intimidated by that word ministry. Uh, What I mean by that is that in a healthy church, the banker who sits in the back left and the homemaker who sits to his right and the elementary school teacher who sits to his left, all of them are consumed by dreams of how God might use their life to expand his kingdom. It's the defining quest of their lives, regardless of their vocations that they've been called to and that they spend their nine to fives with every day. We had to set up this sermon today like this, I think, because in this text that we're going to be looking at today, the text that Drew just read, the author, Paul, is praying about ministry specifically. And if we weren't aware in this room that all of us are in ministry, we'd be tempted right off the bat to just dismiss this out of hand. We would write it off as a message for somebody else because ministry is for that select few. But hear me before we start. I'm at risk of preaching before we get into the text, and I really don't want to do that, but I just really think we need to set this up. And junior high students, this is for you. And retirees, this is for you. This is for all of us who are members of the body of Christ. We are all called to ministry. And even if you're here this morning and haven't yet given your life to Jesus, don't be surprised if in this text this morning you are awakened to Uh, a purpose for your life that you never even dreamed of or had been aware of before. So we're looking at the text today that actually happened to be the inspiration for so many of Jim Elliott's ministry dreams. We're looking at Romans 15. Would you turn there if you didn't already when Drew read that? I think it's page 949 in the Bible in the seat in front of you. Um, A little background as you're turning to Romans 15. This is the last installment of the series we've been in called Praying with Paul. We've loosely based it on a book by uh, Dr. Carson over at Trinity by the same name. We've used his framework for the series. Um, We've been looking at the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and trying to reform our own prayer lives in light of the way Paul prays. And we've been seeing week after week that Paul's priorities in prayer are in many ways different from our own. Um, And I know my own prayer life has been reformed as a result of this exploration. At the time when this text was written, Here in Romans 15, Paul has spent about 25 years planting churches in the eastern Mediterranean. And uh, these are churches that he's been planting primarily among Gentiles. And um, now he's getting ready to head from what we would now know as Greece to Jerusalem, where it all began. And he's going to be bringing with him an offering that has been taken, a, a collection that's been taken from these Gentile churches as a gift to the Jewish church at Jerusalem. Um, He has concerns about this journey, though. He's uh, concerned that it may not go smoothly, and so his prayer that we'll see here is that the journey would go smoothly, which would give him a chance to stop and see these people he's writing to in Rome on his way to Spain for uh, ministry in a place where they've never heard the name Jesus. Um, So I'm just going to read the last four verses of this one more time, just now that we're kind of oriented to where Paul's at. Just the actual prayer itself, verses 30 through uh, 33. Um, Listen as and follow along as I read verses 30 through 33 of Romans 15. I appeal to you, brothers, 
by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Those last four verses of the prayer, what Drew read in full gave us the background for that prayer that's so necessary in order to understand the prayer. But in these four verses that we look at in detail, we're going to see that there are four questions that get answered here with regards to this prayer. First uh, is why. Why should the Roman Christians pray for Paul? Second is how. Pray how. Third is pray what. Pray for what. And fourth is so what. So as we walk through the text, we'll take those questions in turn. First one is why. In verse 30, why should the Roman Christians pray for Paul? And I think we see two answers there. Uh, First, we see a Trinitarian foundation for this prayer. Did you notice that all three members of the Trinity show up in verse 30? Uh, I appeal to you by by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And I don't think it's incidental that in a prayer that is one member of the community Uh, making an appeal for prayer to the rest of the community, that he would appeal on the basis of a God who is himself community, a three-in-one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's as if Paul is saying that, hey, uh, Roman church, the same God that you pray to, I pray to. The same Jesus who is your Lord is my Lord. The same Holy Spirit that gave love to you that you share to others, that's the same Holy Spirit that gave me the love that I have for you. But I think there may be even more to what Paul's doing here. A few times in Paul's letters, he uh, does something like this. He says, if you've experienced X, then you will surely do Y. Right? There's, there's an experiential basis sometimes. And I think this is one of those times, a classic example of it is in the well-known passage at the beginning of Philippians chapter 2, when he says, if you've experienced blessings in Christ, um, encouragement, fellowship, etc., then you will make my joy complete. Right? And I think he may be doing something like this here without using the word if. When he says that I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I think what he's saying here is, that if the same Jesus Christ that I worship is also your Lord, and if the same Holy Spirit that gives me my love is giving you love, then on that basis you will do this that I'm asking you for. And namely here it's, you will pray for me. How could you not if you've been experiencing that love and if you are under the Lordship of Jesus? So maybe this, this takeaway here for us on this first point is just a simple, straightforward one. And it's that if we as a church here at North Sub are indeed under the rule, the lordship of Jesus. And if we have indeed experienced the love of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about here, then we will pray for each other. How could we not if we truly have experienced uh, this lordship and this fellowship in the Spirit? And to the extent that we're not motivated to pray for one another, perhaps it's just a call to examine ourselves to see whether indeed we do share a common lord whether we do indeed experience a common love. So that's the why in verse 30, but I think there's actually another question that we can answer in verse 30, and that's the how. Um, How should these Roman Christians pray for Paul? And um, for lack of a better phrase, I'm suggesting that there's a warlike character to it, and that might be misunderstood. So 
what I'm trying to get at here is that there's this battlefield mentality that Paul is calling them to in prayer. And I'm thinking specifically of this phrase here, strive together with me in your prayers to God. If you're reading from the NIV, you might see the phrase, join me in my struggle. That word that's being used there is often used of the, the strenuous discipline that uh, a soldier undergoes or that an athlete undergoes as he's uh, struggling to win a prize. It's not uncommon for Paul to talk this way about prayer either. Throughout his letters, he often talks about prayer as something that involves intense effort. Um, So what's up with this? Those of you who are workout fanatics, what does uh, your prayer life have to do with P90X? What do the two have in common, right? Those of you who are military families, what does your prayer life have to do with the battlefield? What do they have in common? Um, Dr. Carson had a quote that I thought was a helpful explanation of this. He says, The idea is not that prayer becomes intrinsically superior and potentially more effective when it's offered up in a frenzy of sweat. The idea, rather, is that Paul understands real praying to include an element of struggle, discipline, work, spiritual agonizing against the dark powers of evil. I think that last phrase is so critical there, against the dark powers of evil. The reason that our prayers are a struggle is because we have an opponent that we're fighting against, that we're battling against in prayer. And that opponent, of course, is the devil. Um, And some of you might feel like, oh, I'm a little bit upset now. I'm, I'm in one of those churches, one of those churches that still believes in the devil and those old superstitious things. And actually we do here at North Sub, um, and we actually believe that here in uh, this place and time where we live, it's a little more difficult to see our opponents work against us than it is in some other parts of the world. In other parts of the world, they read a verse like verse 30, and when they read Paul saying, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, they know exactly what that's talking about because they've got a front row seat to the enemy's activity taking place day in and day out. Just one example, many of you have known people who have had spiritual encounters like this, but um, one example just from recently is uh, my wife Sarah's in classes at Trinity, and they were sharing some stories in the class, stories of how they came to know the Lord, and one of her fellow classmates, an international student, shared the story of how he came to know the Lord, and uh, when he accepted Christ, his family noticed a difference in him. They said, there's a strange new spirit in our son. We don't like it. And so they took him to the local um, faith expert in town, something like a guru or a shaman or a witch doctor in the village where he lived. And they took their son there and they said, we want you to get rid of this spirit, this new spirit that's in him. And the faith expert said, okay, well, what is the spirit that's in him? And Sarah's classmate spoke up and said, it's the spirit of Jesus Christ. And this faith expert started shaking and got really scared and said, I can't pray against that spirit. We can't do anything about that spirit. Please leave. That spirit is too strong. And that's how Sarah's classmate came to know the Lord and several others did through him as well. Um, In other places in the world, this is happening all the time and they're seeing it. And so they understand what struggle it is that we uh, are fighting against in prayer. Um, So why don't we see it? Do you ever think about that? Why don't we see, why is it so easy for us on the North Shore to fall asleep about what's at stake? Why don't we see these confrontations taking place? I wonder if, in part, it's because we've bought into this narrative 
this story that our culture has told um, that there's sociological or psychological or even economic explanations for all these phenomena that would otherwise maybe be attributed to the devil's work, right? In other words, we've gotten so good at explaining the devil's work in a thousand different ways using different diagnoses and technical scientific terms that he is now has free reign to operate in and among us without us even noticing or feeling like we need to struggle in prayer against him. I wonder to what extent that's the situation. But when we, when we pray for someone that we know and love, when we're praying for them to come to know Jesus, let's, let's acknowledge what the situation really is. What we're praying for is not just that we would finally get the exact right words to say that would intellectually convince them to believe in Jesus Christ. It's also not that we would be able to tug their heartstrings in just the right way so that they'd have that emotional connection that would make them come to faith in Christ either. While it's fine to pray for the right words to say, more than anything, we ought to be praying for our loved ones, our siblings, our neighbors who don't know Jesus, that the God of this world, as the devil is called in Scripture, that he would loosen his grip on them, that the activity he's done in blinding their eyes to the truth of the gospel, that those blinders would be removed and that the enemy would be conquered so that they would come to saving faith in Jesus. That's the reality of what's happening with our friends and loved ones who haven't yet met Jesus. That's what it looks like to strive together in prayer as Paul is talking about here. Before we move on from this point, I I just wonder if maybe um, there's somebody here who's hung up a little bit because you're thinking something like this. Hey, I take my faith seriously. I'm a devout believer. But prayer, this prayer thing we've been talking about, this just isn't really my thing. I'm just never going to be somebody who's striving in prayer and really working at it and putting lots of hours into it. Um, Don't get me wrong, I love Jesus and all, but that's just, and I, I really appreciate prayer warriors who do that, but that's just not me. What does this passage say to someone like that? Um, is there room for that in Scripture? Is, there, uh, uh, is this a call for a select few elite Christians, or is this a call for all of us? I think we might just summarize Scripture's teaching on this by acknowledging that there isn't really a category that we see in Scripture of a Christian who has a truly devout faith and a truly vibrant walk with the Lord, but who doesn't have a fervent prayer life to God. That's just not something that we see coming up. Um, The very basis for this plea here, this urging, this appeal in verse 30, remember, was their common lordship under Jesus Christ and the common love that they have under the Spirit. Are either of those special experiences only reserved for an elite few Christians? No, of course not. We all have experienced the love of the Holy Spirit. If we're in Christ, we're all under his lordship, and so we should all be praying for one another as warriors. And we have many prayer warriors in this church. I'm so grateful to be part of a church where I've gotten to be blessed by and challenged by so many prayer warriors. And I've gotten the chance to pray alongside many of you and have really benefited from that. But I've got to say that I do dream about the day when there's no such thing as a member of North Sub who isn't a prayer warrior. There's no such thing as any one of us being here and not being somebody who strives together with one another in prayer. Can you imagine that day? And uh, as I was working through this text in preparation to preach today, I just 
had to keep coming to a place where I was humbled before God and asking for his forgiveness. Forgive me, Lord, for not striving together in prayer with my brothers and sisters in the fights that they find themselves in. We still have two more questions to answer. We'll do them much more briefly. Um, What to pray for and what are the implications of that? Um, Verse 31 gets into what Paul is actually requesting prayer for. And there are two things that he's requesting there. Deliverance from unbelievers and acceptability of his ministry to believers. So first he requests in verse 31, pray that I might be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. That's where he's headed after he writes this letter. Um, So why does he pray for deliverance from the unbelievers there? Um, Well, you can imagine. Um, Put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish unbelievers in Jerusalem. Here's this guy, Paul, who once was one of them, and now he's preaching about Jesus all over the world. He's de-emphasizing circumcision. Um, He is talking about some ideas that maybe would put an end to the sacrifice system if they were taken to their conclusion, right? Um, In other words, and he's hanging out with Gentiles on top of it all. So in other words, what from their perspective— This Paul is undermining the whole basis for their law, for their temple, for their whole heritage as Jewish people. From their perspective, it's blasphemy, right? So you can understand why Paul is concerned about how this trip is going to go when he goes back to Jerusalem and sees uh, these Jewish people, formerly uh, his colleagues, who um, are very upset about what he's been doing. What's in that prayer for us? Maybe there's just a simple takeaway there from the beginning of verse 31 that it's okay to pray for safety. We've made a big deal in these recent weeks that Paul's priorities in prayer are different from ours, and he spends a lot less time focused on praying for comfort and safety and health like we do. But we've been careful to say all along, that doesn't mean it's wrong to pray for those things, right? And here we see it. Paul himself can pray for safety in certain situations. Then he gets to the second half of verse 31, though, and he prays that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Um, what's the service that he has in mind here? Well, it's that monetary offering that he's bringing from the Gentile churches in Greece and that area, and he's bringing it to the primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem. And Paul had to have envisioned in this offering that it would be a great display of unity. That's why it's so important to him that by these Gentile churches um, bringing this offering to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, it's saying thank you for the heritage that we've inherited. Our faith heritage comes from you, our Jewish brothers and sisters. And by accepting the gift, the believers in Jerusalem will be saying, yes, you Gentiles are brothers and sisters truly in the same Lord Jesus. And this is the same faith that we both practice. Um, So why would he think it's not going to be acceptable? Why would he be concerned at the end of verse 31 that this wouldn't be acceptable? Who wouldn't be happy to receive a large monetary gift, right? I think we maybe know the answer to that question when, as soon as we ask it because some of us aren't very good at receiving gifts, right? I know I'm one of them. We had a few folks over to our house for dinner a few weeks ago, and between dinner and dessert, Sarah and I were kind of uh, um, taking care of Elijah a little bit, and uh, one of the couples who was there at dinner with us started doing our dishes, and it made me very uncomfortable. I was like, no, please don't do my dishes. I'm thinking, you know, I'm the pastor. I'm the one who's wanting to be serving you. Please don't serve me. This is uncomfortable. Um, and then uh, this friend looked at us and said, 
hey, it takes a lot of humility to let someone serve you. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty perfect thing to say because I don't know what, what do you say to that, right? So we let them do our dishes. Um, but that's who I am, right? I don't want to accept help from other people. I don't want to do that. And it's the same with this monetary gift, right? We can imagine that the Jewish believers in Jerusalem may not want to accept this gift because after all, it's hardest to accept a gift from someone when you perceive yourself to be in some way superior to them, right? If you're thinking of them as some way inferior, in some way inferior to you, um, it's very hard to accept something from their hand, some blessing from their hand. So Paul doesn't know how it's going to be received, and that's why he's praying for that here at the end of verse 31. All that's left for us to look at now is verse 32. Uh, the final question is, so what? That's where we find out what Paul hopes will happen as a result of the requests of verse 31 being granted. So if verse 31 is granted, what's going to happen as a result? Well, in summary, in verse 32, he's praying that the ministry of verse 31, that ministry to Jerusalem as he brings the monetary gift there, will result in more ministry in the future. That this ministry would lead to more ministry. Um, he's hoping that it would go well in Jerusalem so that he can stop over in Rome and see these people that he's writing to, but only quickly on his way to Spain, right? As we heard in the verses that Drew read earlier. He doesn't hope to go to Rome just because he's a, a busy old man who's yearning for a vacation, right? It's not just an R&R &R trip. We saw in verse 24 what he's hap hoping will happen when he goes to Rome. He's hoping that he'll be refreshed, but he'll be resourced for a journey to go to Spain, which is a place where they don't know about Jesus. They've never heard about him, and that's really what gets Paul fired up, is going to people who have never heard that name Jesus. Um, so here's somebody in Paul who has Jim Elliott-type dreams, or actually it's vice versa, right? But Paul, we have somebody here who can read Isaiah 52, which he quotes back in verse 21. And when he sits down and reads Isaiah 52, and Isaiah 52 is talking about these people who haven't known God or haven't known the Messiah, haven't heard about him, coming to hear about him, Paul reads that and says, I want to be the one. I want to be the one to bring the message to people who haven't ever heard it. Here's a person in Paul who looks at the whole area that we would now know as Greece and Turkey and Syria, and he looks at all of it and he says, I'm proud of my service there, in verse 17. I've fulfilled my ministry there, in verse 19. And in verse 23, he says, actually, I have no, room, no more room for ministry there because there have already been churches planted in that whole area. And he sets his sights to Spain, to a new place where there haven't been churches planted. I think there's two mistakes that we make in prayer that are highlighted by this part of Paul's prayer. One mistake we make sometimes is that we pray these just huge abstract prayers that are sure not to be answered. Like, Lord, please save everybody in the whole world. Right? We know God's not going to answer that prayer. He's told us that he's not going to. Right? Um, but more often, we make the mistake... Uh, that's just the opposite. And that's that we get so fixated on the immediate details of the next ministry opportunity right in front of us and praying for that, that we don't have an expanded, we lack the ability to have an expanded vision for what God could do down the road, what big things God might do down the road in our life, or little things, it doesn't have to be big things. But we get so stuck in the minute details that there's no room for dreaming about the distant future. But Paul's able to do both. He's able to 
pray for the immediate trip to Jerusalem, that that ministry would go well. And as he dreams about that and thinks about that, he can't help but his, let his mind go to, well, if that does go well, what might be next? Where, where, God, where might God want to use me next down the road? So in the end, as we're reading Paul praying like this, our big idea for today might just be this. Let us join one another's ministry dreams by struggling in prayer to expand God's kingdom. Let's join one another's ministry dreams. That's what Paul's asking these Roman Christians to do. He's got ministry dreams of going to Spain. Please join me in that, Roman Christians. And join me by struggling in prayer. That's the type of prayer that we're called to engage in with one another. It takes work. It takes effort. It's um, a struggle against an actual enemy that we have, and we're conscious of him in prayer. And all the while, we're fueled by this desire to expand God's kingdom, that not our names would be made great in the world, but that his rule and reign would extend to new places where it doesn't already exist. As you dream ministry dreams, and as I dream ministry dreams, let's do that for each other. We'll have a chance to do that even today after the service. But today, before we wrap up, there's actually um, one more piece, like a tag-on to the big idea. We're going to call it a big idea plus this morning. Um, Because this scripture is unique in our series in that we actually know how this prayer was answered. We have the book of Acts, and so we know what happened after Paul penned these words in Romans 15, and we know that this prayer actually wasn't answered the way Paul hoped. And so our big idea plus is the idea that sometimes God says no to our ministry dreams. Sometimes God says no to our ministry dreams. What ministry dreams of Paul's does God say no to? Well, as I count it in this passage, he made three requests. One, that he be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Two, that his service in Jerusalem would be acceptable to the saints. And three, that he get to spend a time of refreshment in Rome before being sent off for further work in Spain. Out of those, number two was answered yes. It does seem from the book of Acts that Paul's monetary gift that he brought from the Gentile churches to the Jewish church was accepted with gladness. So that one was answered yes. One and three are a lot more complicated. Was Paul delivered from the unbelievers in Judea? Well, he wasn't killed by them, but he was only delivered from them because he was taken out in Roman chains, right? Because the unbelievers in Judea that he was concerned about actually did try to kill him, and they rioted and were making plots to take his life. And same with number three. Did he get to spend a time of refreshment in Rome? Well, he was brought to Rome, but under house arrest, under Roman guard, um, because of all the events that happened in Jerusalem. And we're not sure that he ever did make it to Spain. There's no indication in Scripture, at least, that he ever did get there and get to fulfill that dream that he had for how God would use him there. At very least, we would need to say that Paul's prayer here at the end of Romans 15 is not answered in the way that he hoped it would be answered. So it's important for us to see that and remember that sometimes God will say no to our ministry dreams. But thanks be to God. Because when he says no to our ministry dreams, it's always because he has a better plan than the plan that we had for ourselves and for our own ministries. Remember Jim Elliott, who we talked about at the beginning? He was married eventually to a woman named Elizabeth, a woman who joined him in praying these kind of prayers for him, striving together with him in prayer as they did ministry together. And eventually, as they did ministry together in Ecuador, 
Jim felt called to a hostile tribe there, a tribe of people who had never heard the name Jesus and who had been very hostile to outsiders uh, always, actually. And so Jim and his team of people went in to that tribe to share the gospel, and within days of getting there, they were all speared to death. So we might hear that story, read that story, and think, well, Jim's prayers for ministry, his ministry dreams were answered no, kind of like Paul's were. But then his wife, Elizabeth, after she grieved her husband's death, continued doing ministry in Ecuador and eventually got an open door to get in with that tribe after a few years. And she spent two years living with the very tribe who killed her husband and sharing the gospel with them. And many of you know the story that several from the tribe came to know the Lord through her witness and her forgiveness of the murderers of her husband. And some who were even involved in her husband's murder came to know Jesus as a result. When God says no to Jim Elliott's dreams for her ministry, that he would get to see these people come to know the Lord, when God says no to Paul, that he would be delivered safely from Jerusalem and get to go off to Spain, it's because he has a better plan, a better plan than we could ever dream with, dream of. And I don't know about you, but that just gives me boldness as I pray my own ministry dreams and as I join all of you in praying for your ministry dreams. It gives me boldness because I know that if I'm praying for a ministry dream that is not in line with God's will, he loves us enough to say no to it and keep us from less than his best. But on the flip side, if we are praying ministry dreams that are in line with what God wants to do, he might use those very prayers that we pray together to turn the world upside down, to expand his kingdom all over this world to people who haven't yet fallen under his lordship. Let's pray right now to close. Heavenly Father, we want to be a church of people who don't just leave ministry to some others who are paid to do so or who we perceive to be more spiritual than ourselves. We want to be a church of people who see ourselves as ministers of yours, who have dreams of what you might do in our lives and how you might use us to extend your rule and reign on this earth. And Lord, as we endeavor to do that, as we open ourselves up to those sorts of dreams, help us to come alongside each other as people who struggle together and strive together in prayer. Help us to have that kind of community that only comes under the Lordship of Christ and only comes through the love that's given by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You take a seat, and you all can take a seat if you'd like as well, just because we'll probably take about five minutes addressing a few questions that came in. Um, thank you for texting these in. First one is, why is it that we at North Sub don't preach or have classes on spiritual warfare? Why is it that we don't preach or have classes on spiritual warfare? I can speak for myself in saying that the reason that you haven't heard me preach on it more uh, in other passages where maybe I could have in the last two years is that I feel more comfortable talking about other things, just honestly, right? It's kind of a 
place where I don't feel like I have a lot of expertise, but I know that I've also been with Pastor Craig in many situations informally where he has instructed members of the congregation to help them walk through this. And this is an area in which Pastor Craig is very strong. I'm not sure if there's been formal teaching on it since Pastor Craig's been here, but that's something that we could look at. Um, But that's something that Pastor Craig has worked a lot with and has taught many in our congregation about. And uh, thank you for raising it because it may be a need for more formal teaching um, in the future. Second question, I've heard it argued that Paul is trying to bribe Jewish Christians to accept the legitimacy of Gentile Christians. What's wrong with this interpretation? Um, A couple thoughts on that. One would be a bribe kind of makes it sound like he doesn't actually believe that there's good reason to accept the Gentile Christians, but he wants to override the lack of a reasonable reason to accept them with take this money and uh, then maybe you will, right? But Paul spends so much ink in his letters explaining why the Jewish Christians should accept Gentile Christians very theologically and reasoning it out that he believes, it's clear that he believes from the bottom of his heart that this is the right thing to do. So I'd prefer to see it not as a bribe, but rather as kind of forcing the hand of the Jewish Christians to say, hey, are you accepting these people or not, you know? It's kind of, it might be hard, you've been thinking it through, you've been reasoning theologically on whether you should or not, and whether this is a legitimate movement with these Gentile Christians. Here's an opportunity to show that you actually do accept them. Will you accept this gift or not from their hand? Um, Third one, how does one become a prayer warrior? How does one become a prayer warrior? One thing I would say is that it's not by... Uh, Prayer warriors are not the people who pray the most flowery, impressive prayers, right? Prayer warriors, when I was using that term, I just meant people who pray. So I think of somebody like Lindsay Fensler, whom uh, you've all heard pray at some point probably. Um, Her prayers are powerful and impressive when she prays them, but she's not a prayer warrior because of that. She's a prayer warrior because she just prays very, very frequently, and uh, we all know that she does. And so... Um, I would say just becoming a prayer warrior is nothing more than just praying and praying until you pray, like the Puritans would say. Just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it. Uh, Even when it's hard, that's the striving and the struggling that was talked about in Paul's language. Finally, if I have close friends or family members who are Christians, uh, but currently we don't normally talk about Jesus in conversation or pray for one another, How do I make that switch in our friendship or relationship if for so long that hasn't been the norm? When I first read this question, I thought it said those who are family members who aren't Christians. Um, But I think the answer is similar with those who are Christians, actually, in our families. And a big part of it is just being transparent about who we really are. A big part of this is just being honest. We'd be honest with our friends about anything else in our life. So, hey, what did you do this weekend? Let that I went to church and heard about X, Y, and Z be a part of the story, a big part of the story of your weekend when you're sharing with unbelievers or with believers. With somebody you've had a long-term relationship with and you never really talk about spiritual things, I know I've, I can think of at least one friendship I've had that was like that when I needed to just have a sit-down conversation, actually, and say, listen, I have to apologize to you because I've been dishonest with you in some ways about who I am. When you've asked me how I'm doing, when we've sat down to talk about things, I've talked about everything else in my life besides Jesus, but Jesus is really the most important thing to me. And so I'm just committing to you that from now on, 
we're going to start talking about that. I'm just going to start being honest with you about who I am in that. And so I apologize for relationally withholding from you for so long by not revealing that to you. You'll know based on the relationship whether something like that's necessary or whether you can start easing into it over time just by telling them, hey, I went to church and here's what I learned. Or when they ask, how are you dealing with this problem with your kids? Explaining how the gospel actually shapes your dealing with your kids or any other number of issues that you have in your life. A big part of being uh, faithful witnesses to our believing and unbelieving friends and neighbors is just to be authentic and honest about the role Jesus really does play in our life. Thank you again for these questions. Uh, We heard today a call.